Welcome to Hematopoiesis, an ASH trainee podcast made by trainees for trainees. My name is Becky Zahn. And I am Nina Balanchibatsu. We are so excited to have you join us in this three-part series, Women in Hematology. In this series, we will talk with leaders, Dr. Nancy Berliner, Dr. Ariella Marshall, and Dr. Nana Haman. Together, we will explore what it means to be a woman in hematology, focusing on concepts such as challenges faced by female physicians, mentorship and career development, and intersectionality. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hematopoiesis, an ASH Trainee Council production. We are here today for the third and final episode in our series, Women in Hematology. My name is Becky Zahn, and I'm a member of the ASH Trainee Council and a second-year hematology-oncology fellow at the Dana-Farber Mass General Brigham Program. Today, we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Nada Hamad. Dr. Hamad is a malignant hematologist and bone marrow transplant and cell therapies physician and director of the Hematology Clinical Trials Unit at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia. She is also the president of the Bone Marrow Transplant Society of Australia and New Zealand, and holds many other leadership positions. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Haman. You're most welcome. Pleasure to be here. So I just wanted to kind of start at the beginning and think about how did you end up getting into medicine and more specifically into hematology? I've always been really inquisitive and I loved learning and biology was just like my favorite subject of all time. And it always felt like a calling, like I really enjoyed being there for others. And I remember I automatically became the first aid person everywhere I went. And, you know, I actually started medical school really young and I'm not going to tell you how young, but really, really young. And I, in fact, after three years of doing undergraduate, you know, what we call them preclinical years, kind of wanted to just explore traveling a little bit. And so I actually took a break from medicine and I decided to become a forensic scientist in a completely different path just as a a break to see whether I really wanted to keep doing it. And I loved forensics and it got me into thinking about law. And I came into a juncture in life where I was thinking about whether I do law or medicine. And I, I, my heart was always in medicine. So that's what I did. And so I finished medical school in Sydney, Australia at the university of Sydney. In terms of hematology, to be honest, I, I was on a very direct path towards surgery, you know, quite early on in my career. It was a second career for me because I'd done forensics before and I was quite clear about what I enjoyed at work and what I loved. And the surgical environment really suited me. I really enjoyed that kind of, you know, physical involvement in patient care and and the immediacy of the results that you actually completed something quite quickly. But I went through a bit of a health problem around that kind of pivotal time where I was choosing what I was going to do. And I recall doing a hematology rotation where the people that I worked with were just amazing. They were the nicest doctors I'd ever met. They remembered my name. They were kind to people. They were kind to their patients. And they had this really kind of strong sense of altruism. And it also had that kind of rapid mobilization of resources and things happening for patients really quickly. So there was a very intense acute medicine aspect, particularly in the acute leukemic patients. And, you know, I fell in love with the people, the environment, the science. And in Australia, we train as pathologists and clinicians. So you have to do dual training. And pathology training was quite intensive because it was a completely new side of medicine I hadn't seen before. 
learning how to use a microscope, trying to correlate what you're seeing under the microscope with an actual disease or clinical picture. Having that duality in perspective was for me just, you know, love it for a sec because I tend to be a telescopic person. I really like looking outwards and having multiple ways of looking at a problem. And this just suited me perfectly. You know, we got to see the patient, their social perspective, their clinical presentation, but also look at the biology and the pathology underlying and understand it with depth. It was, you know, it was amazing. And so training in hematology, really every year I trained in hematology with the dual training consolidated for me why I loved it so much, the diversity of thinking and that breadth of thinking. And it was also, to me, a trailblazing specialty. In hematology, we're the first to take up, you know, targeted therapies. We're the first to explore immune therapies. I mean, transplantation is the first immune therapy we've ever come up with in the history of medicine. So what's not to love? And, you know, as clinicians, we're early adopters. You get TKIs, the world changes. Hematology changes just like that. It's very hard to see that in any other profession. A lot of my physician colleagues, you know, the newer drugs, newer treatments take a very long time to get integrated into standards of care. And hematology hasn't disappointed yet. You know, molecular genomics, precision medicine, that's all our domain and our strengths. So I have to say that as the time goes by, I'm still feeling really amazing about being a hematologist. What a time is it to be, you know, it's amazing. The science, the clinical medicine, the experiences, my career has certainly given me back much more than I expected. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're totally right that it's such an amazing time in hematology and medicine in general. You mentioned training in Sydney, and then you also did two fellowships in Toronto in bone marrow transplant and lymphoma. Can you talk about what that was like and what it's been like to do hematology and practice in many different areas in the world? I've got a love of, of travel that my parents kind of instilled in me. It gave me a perspective on the world that I think I didn't appreciate at the time, but in retrospect, gave me two lessons that I have drawn on ever since. One is the world is really your oyster. You can pick up and you can go and you will learn new things. You will see new things and you'll learn a lot about yourself wherever it is that you go. And the second is that wherever you go, things may be different. And sometimes we can internalize our own anxieties and fears and pressures and stresses, but sometimes it's just the environment that you're in. It's not about you particularly as a person. And so that's given me a certain, I guess, inner strength of knowing who I am and, and where I belong and how people see me and whether that's got something to do with me or something to do with the cultural around me. So when I trained in Australia, I mean, I had lived a lot of places before and I could see that things are different in other countries, that they're naturally, things are different everywhere you go. And I had an intense desire to see what it's like elsewhere within my profession in hematology and to experience a little bit of a, you know, a potential career trajectory that may not have been open to me in Australia. So I wanted to train in transplant. I wanted to see more and learn more and become a subspecialist. And that opportunity wasn't available in Australia because we don't have high volume centers. We have a very decentralized health sector. So every center does everything. And I wanted to really kind of sink my teeth into malignant hematology and transplantation. And the other thing is in Australia, transplant is a very male dominated space. Very few female transplanters were around when I wanted to do transplant. And that was the case in Canada as well. But when I went to visit at the Princess Margaret and met a couple of people 
you know, who were working in that unit, I kind of felt like I would probably do well and would belong and I'd be welcomed and embraced. So I decided to take the leap and go. I took my four month old with me and, you know, it was, it was amazing. And what I would reflect on is the diversity element in Canada is much more established than it is in Australia. And so it felt much more comfortable for me. The fact that I was woman was again, not so unusual they were so supportive of me having a four month old and what that came with, the flexibility they offered me, the joy in celebrating my family was something I hadn't experienced here in Australia either. So it's just a difference in how the workforce is structured and the pressures on the workforce and how career development and career trajectories are deliberately planned and supported where I was in Canada. And I didn't quite feel like that in Australia. And that's, again, just a difference in structure and in systems. But I have to say that the fact that I moved somewhere else gave me a lot more than I expected that I bargained for. So I was very grateful for that experience. Wow, that was a fantastic reflection. Thank you. I was wondering if you could talk about being a woman in leadership positions that you hold and more specifically being a woman of color in those positions. You know, that's a very challenging question <laughs> <laughs> because first of all, it's, it is hard being a woman in a leadership position and it's even harder being a woman of color in a leadership position. And most people don't understand why I would say that. So if you're not a woman of color, you're not going to get it. If you're a woman of color, you instantly understand it. You are judged differently. You are perceived differently. Everything you say, everything you do is perceived with a particular light that is not necessarily a positive one and not necessarily based on your intention as the leader or the product that you deliver or the work that you deliver or the quality of the work you deliver. So, you know, often if I reflect and think, if I was a white male in my position, how would what I have said have landed? And it would have landed very differently every single time, guaranteed. The kind of responses I receive are often hypercritical, unnecessarily so, or sometimes adversarial, unnecessarily so. And as a woman of color, you can never really respond to that the way some of my colleagues might. You know, if you feel incensed about something or feel disrespected or feel humiliated by an exchange, whatever might occur, I don't have the luxury of being open about how I feel about those things. I must always remain in a certain level of composure, which is a good thing to learn as a leader anyway. That's, that's what you're supposed to do as a leader. You should be able to kind of receive information synthesize it, try and remove the emotional aspect of it and be able to construct responses that are useful and helpful for the endeavor you're trying to achieve. So it is certainly not easy to be in that position. Getting into that position isn't easy either because most of the time you're not expected to be in that position. And I will just share with you a couple of things that people will often say to me. They'll say to me, you know, when do you sleep? Or you do too many things. You're doing so many things. How is this possible? And I think, you know, would you have said that to some of my male colleagues that you really respect and think are extremely smart or really effective and accomplished? Or is this just odd because I'm the person doing it? Is it just odd to you that this is who's actually doing it? 
And I often respond, well, actually, I sleep fine and I'm, I love what I do. There's a reason I'm doing this. And the reason is, you know, I'm not sure what you think the reason is, but I love being in this position and being able to contribute to my profession and contribute with a skill set that I possess that I know I'm good at. I'm, I know that I have not only deliberately trained to be a leader, but I, I'm objectively competent in it. And so this is what I would like to offer my community and my profession. So, you know, I have the will, I have the capacity and I have the skill set. What is the problem? But it is surprising to some people. You know, sometimes I'll say, oh, you know, I'm happy to see this patient for you. I just wondered if you were too busy given all the other things that you do. And I would think, well, it's not that odd. We all do lots of different things. That's what a hematologist does. We do a variety of things. And, you know, if you'd asked and I said, I'm too busy, that would be one thing. But to assume that I'm stretching my capacity somehow based on what you're perceiving has more to do with your view of the world than of my capacity. It's getting there is a challenge, a personal challenge, because for me, I really truly believe that representation is essential. It is really important for someone like me to be in a visible position. Being in a visible position usually brings a lot of stress and anxiety for that person, right? So it's not easy. But at the same time, you know, I have three kids who are all girls. I have junior fellows and trainees who desperately are looking forward to someone in their environment that looks like them or they can model careers by or model behavior by. And if I hear one more time that a female hematologist is just worried about doing transplant, it just seems a lot, or it just seems a bit stressful and seems a bit toxic. You know, I get very upset about that. And I think, okay, well, what can I do about it other than be there, take that space, make sure I can steer the ship in whatever direction to move that needle towards a welcoming environment for female trainees and clinicians, but also people of color and especially women of color, because there's just not many of us around, particularly in Australia and New Zealand. I think I'm the only black hematologist, female hematologist in Australia and New Zealand. There's only other one black male hematologist in Australia and New Zealand. And that's certainly not reflective of the society in Australia and New Zealand. There are people of color in our profession, but Certainly to take up room like that with intention is not common. And I do so with intention. So most of the newsletters that I write or the emails that I write, there's a lot of EDI language all over it. And it can make people uncomfortable. But in my mind, this is what I can bring. I have an interest in EDI that is both academic and professional and personal. So that's what it means to be a leader and bring those values into your environment. And that's the new perspective, which is why I think diversity is important because you get a new perspective, even if it's challenging for some. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I would wonder what can and what should we all do to make our profession more representative of the societies which we serve? I've thought long and hard about this. And as I personally came to a journey of realization of the impact of diversity, intersectionality in medicine in general, as a scientist and as an academic, it became a scientific and academic endeavor for me. So just looking at what intersectionality is, it is a way of looking at the world from a social construct perspective that is really quite 
fascinating because it stops you from thinking about the world, about gender alone, about racism alone, about, you know, ableism alone. It's a way of integrating all of those identities into a system where you can start to see, okay, well, there are people who certainly have it the worst and there are people who have it the best. Now, how do we, how do we intend to address this social disparity. Social disparities in society and culture are not necessarily the domain of a physician, but medicine is. So how do we address this in medicine? Well, you can start to look at how society and culture interact with medicine and appreciate that racism and sexism and ableism also exist in medicine. We're not in isolation. We may have a moral high ground that we have a calling to help others, but that's not the same as you know being blind to injustice. We incorporate it and absorb it in our society and culture, just like everybody else. So we have to be acknowledging of this problem. And in my mind, the most efficient way to do that is to integrate intersectionality into our profession. In the domains of education, clinical research or research in general, and medical practice, it strikes me as quite late in the game for us to be talking about this because we have now accepted that there's some issues in society and culture with racism and gender, but we haven't really adopted any practical strategies in medicine. We are now moving towards writing EDI or equity, diversity, inclusion policies or statements from societies, but we're still struggling with the practicalities of how we address these things. So in my mind, step number one, we should be teaching intersectionality in every level in medicine, both from medical school all the way to leadership positions. We should be expecting a level of competence in the domains of equity, diversity, inclusion with an intersectional lens. What does it actually mean to integrate intersectionality into medicine? So, you know, I've written a couple of pieces around this talking about how we probably have to address intersectionality in the various institutions in our professions. We need to address it in the teaching that we deliver and into the research processes or research domains. And the more I study about this, the more I think about it from an academic point of view, the more there is to find. And so I'm very appreciative of Ash actually elevating EDI into an actual overarching theme. The last Ash was extraordinary. It was the first time that I was seeing, you know, the scientific implications of equity, diversity, and inclusion, not just around access, because in Australia, most of the time when we talk about EDI, or at least I talk about EDI, I get this reflection of, well, in the US, it's a problem because they don't have a publicly funded healthcare system. And so access is linked to socioeconomic factors, and therefore it plays out in a racial way. But in reality, in Australia, even in a publicly funded healthcare system and in Canada and other countries where you have a publicly funded free for all healthcare system, that does not mean everybody is getting the same quality of healthcare delivered at the point of care. And that is whether they are able to access it physically or financially, whether the science that we're using applies to them. And this for me was the bit that really got to me. The quality of the science is not the same for everyone. So if we are generating data derived from male, white male participants in clinical research, how is that data applicable to women, people of color, people of diverse backgrounds who may have biological differences? Race is not a biological construct. It's a social construct, but there are potentially differences, biological differences that are not accounted for 
And if we are then treating people and hoping to treat patients with a precision medicine model, then is it really precision medicine if the data doesn't apply to everybody? And so that blind spot in the science is what really opened my mind to the concept of intersectionality in all aspects of medicine, including clinical research, because without it, we're actually creating the disparities. We're complicit in the process. So every time I get a clinical trial protocol, I put on my EDI hat, bring out my intersectionality circle. I'm like, who's missing? Who's not going to be in the study because of an intersectional identity or a combination of them? And is that done deliberately? And have we thought about how we ensure that this is not perpetrated forever? In my mind, I felt this intense desire to no longer be part of that complicit strategy of just, you just receive a protocol and you sign the forms and you say, okay, we'll conduct the study. I now have a deliberate review. I write back and I say, no, I don't think we should exclude patients who have HIV. And no, I don't think you should be excluding patients with hep B or neutropenia from a cutoff that makes no sense or pregnancy. If there's no strong rationale. And if there is a reason, we got to write it down if that's going to be an exclusion criteria. And I'm very grateful for my personal journey towards intersectionality and the learning and the reading of amazing scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw, bringing me to this realization. So in terms of steps, I think deliberate education, deliberate expertise gathering around this is key. You mentioned so many important things to consider in medicine and more specifically within clinical trials. How can we get more diverse representation of patients in our clinical trials? As far as, you know, recruiting patients, it is harder to recruit women. It is harder to recruit rural and regional patients, and it's harder to recruit patients with disabilities in general, or patients who don't speak English as a primary language. And I'll give you an example where, you know, some of my attempts failed (laughs) and I learned a lot from that. (laughs) But for some of the studies, I will ask that carer allowances. So there is funding for carer leave or childcare or carer services so that more women are able to be there and attend the clinic visits and the intensity of visits associated with clinical trials. It's much easier if I say, look, you know, you will have babysitting charges paid for or childcare Mm -hmm. services paid for. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I'll say things like, well, we need to have a clause about why there's a pregnancy exclusion or a lactation exclusion. If, you know, I'm not asking you to include them all. I'm just asking for a scientific rationale. So when the paper is published, we can say, well, these are the people who are excluded and this is why we did it. And so people can make up their own minds about how they analyze that conclusion. So, you know, the more you research these concepts and these ideas, the more I realize that there needs to be expertise that is drawn upon into the clinical research design and protocol development, where you have someone where their entire focus is on the intersectionality concepts within that project design and development. That person's job is to make sure that there's nothing that is likely to be inadvertently exclusive of patients that you need. And we all would like to think we're good at that. All of us want to think that, you know, we think about all our patients and we want to treat everybody equally and we want to do right by everyone. But the reality is we can't do that. Everybody is biased inherently based on their own worldview and their own perspective. And so the blind spots are many. So you may need people either from diverse backgrounds in the room, which is a challenge because you can't have someone representing every intersectional identity in the world every single time, but you can develop expertise in this field and draw on that. 
So I really believe that there will be a time where we will have equity, diversity, inclusion officers or intersectionality experts on trial design, advising, consulting on the process one day. That's such an amazing idea. I absolutely love that. So hopefully it happens in soon. You're such an inspiration to so many people. What advice would you have for your trainees? You know, I think on reflection over the last couple of years, particularly with COVID, I certainly feel more confident in some of the ideas and thoughts that I had early in my training. You know, back in the day, I would think something, you know, someone else must have thought of that before, or surely this is not the first time someone has thought about this. And the older I get and the more senior I get, the more I realize actually somebody may not have thought about that before because we all have our own viewpoints, perspectives, and we all have unique lives lives and points of view. And so if you feel that you see something and you're not sure if you're the only person in the room seeing it, you know, don't assume that there's other people thinking it, speak up, say something. And I would encourage and empower trainees to really explore their profession to its fullest. I mean, hematology, there's so much to learn, so much to do. And if it's not necessarily in the trodden path of academia or the trodden path of community hematology, There are so many other things that people could be doing and there's so many intersecting paths. So don't be afraid to go down the untrodden path and be a trailblazer because that's what hematology is all about. You know, just embrace the trailblazing and go out there and do it. And I would really, really hope that the concepts of equity, diversity and inclusion and intersectionality are not a secondary thought, but an integral thought. Read, read so much about being an ally, being an intersectionalist, being, you know, a woman in medicine and learn from stories of other women and really try and integrate that into your day-to-day and make sure that when you see something that challenges you around how you were trained or how you experienced your profession, let it sink in. There are gaps in our training. There are blind spots in our training. And when I talk to my trainees now, I say, look, if you're ever in that position where you think you weren't taught to deal with this, that's a gap. We need to address that gap. So don't shy away from it. Embrace it. Think about it. Think about what you want to do about it. Write about it. Talk about it. Present about it. So that's why sometimes what I write and what I publish may not necessarily be on transplant all the time or on lymphoma. That happens, but I do write a lot and publish a lot around equity, diversity, inclusion, because when I see that gap, I feel the need to address it. And I I hope that I can encourage everyone coming into this profession in their junior years to just do that. That's amazing. Yeah, I think filling those gaps and recognizing them are so important. And then going the next step and talking about them and making them known. That's, that's amazing advice. The last question I have to ask you is what was it like when you got to be um, in vogue? <laughs> so, um, you know, that was, it was during COVID. It was a whirlwind. You know, I was told by my hospital, they're looking for some female hematologist for a Vogue piece. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I was told it was an interview. And so I had no expectation there would be any photos or anything. I thought, you know, there'd be a little kind of tiny piece that says, you know, women in medicine during COVID. And, you know, the interview was 20 minutes during a very busy clinic day. I remember doing it just in between clinic patients trying to fit it in. And the photo shoot was a 10 minute photo shoot where I really had hoped somebody would turn up with some makeup or something. And uh, they said, oh, no, we just want to take pictures of you at work. And I thought, oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) this is 
not <laughs> what I expected today. Um, so I was very pleased that there was a professional who certainly, you know, it made for a beautiful photo. I was very grateful for it. And I really didn't expect much to come of it because, you know, this is not a, a it's not a New England Journal of Medicine publication or anything. <laughs> that's what, that's what I was aspiring to at the time. But what really astounded me about that piece was the number of emails and DMs I got on Twitter from young women, especially women of color, who were just so surprised and so impressed and so validated by seeing a woman of color in vogue as a doctor and, and how many people had actually picked up on what I said and felt that the things that I said had resonated. And that really surprised me because as a busy clinician who thinks, and I'm not sure people are actually reading what's written in vogue, but it really brought it home to me that representation matters in ways that we don't necessarily appreciate. And for the number of young people who said that they were inspired, you know, I, I still choke up thinking about that because, you know, I didn't have that. And it was really nice to see that, that I was able to do that for someone else. Yeah. It's an amazing, amazing piece as with all of your other work. And I just feel so grateful that you're here and that I got to spend this time with you. You are such an inspirational person. Thank you so much. Like I said, it's a privilege and an honor to be speaking to you today. And I love that we're doing this as a community of hematologists. And I just love seeing young people and fellows and trainees sort of look forward to their careers in hematology. It's just such a privilege. 